the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab Premium, version 308, version episode 308, for Thursday, January 6th, 2011. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab. You know the show. It's the show where you send in the questions, you send in the tips, we share what we know. From uh, baby, it's cold outside Durham, New Hampshire. I'm Dave Hamilton. <laughs> uh, yeah, it is cold, and 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 a storm's a brewing, from what I hear. At least for us, yeah, we, we got we got a blizzard warning or something or something some cooking. weather. That's Anyways, John F. Braun. That's right, Fairfield, Connecticut, and then back up in New Hampshire. It's Pilot Pete. Glad to be with you guys. And is it technically speaking, it's not cold, but it's lack of warmth, right? I mean. Lack of energy. Sure. Let's yeah. go with that. <laughs> that sounds good. Who invited this guy? <laughs> Mr. I showed up here. with a note from my mother. That's it. <laughs> yeah, I can't read what she said, though. Uh, you know, so we've got quite a few questions and, and such here. Uh, but, John, you and I both did something recently that uh, that that bears discussion. And that is we both migrated our calendars uh, in mobile me. Now, mobile me about uh, somewhere between three and seven months ago, depending on when you uh, hopped into this process, uh, moved from the, moved their calendar syncing from whatever solution, you know, customized private API solution they used in the past to the industry standard CalDAV uh, solution, which which allows for a whole lot more functionality. Uh, and it also makes the syncing process a lot smoother, right? So previously, if you wanted to sync your calendars between two of your own machines, you had to log in to uh, to MobileMe Sync inside the uh, system preferences. You know, go in there, go to MobileMe, sign up, and click the click the uh, checkbox there. And then via sync services, your calendars would get synced. At least in theory, it was always sort of wacky, and. And it, it, it never, I don't know, for me, it never really worked right. I mean, it would work and then it would stop working and there was no real way to look and see what was going on. And it was always this convoluted mess because sync services is this sort of black box. It would sync, it, you know, iCal saw your calendars as local calendars. And then those calendars would be synced locally on your Mac between iCal and mobile me and sync services and then sync services would sync it up to Apple's cloud. However, it chose to do that. Then on the other end, it would sync down from the cloud to sync services and then sync services would sync it to iCal. So it was this big convoluted process. And I think they refer to it as a hive of bees or at least a swarm of, bees. Yes. swarm of bees meddling with sync services, which is stored deep in the OS somewhere. But yeah, that, I, I remember the, the article you told me about and they say that don't even think of touching this because it, it can accomplish no good. That's right. Yes, that's right. So uh, and, and then they allowed you and this was not through sync services. Right. So these two things were separate. But. If, for example, you had a calendar that you wanted other people to be able to see, uh, you could publish that calendar. They, they created this whole thing that they called publish and subscribe. And this started years ago. Uh, and and it was fine at the time, but it, it got pretty antiquated because it never evolved. What what would happen is 
If you had a calendar, like, for example, John, you know, we have our Mac GeekGab calendar. Now, if I had published that previously in Mobile Me, you could not edit it. All you could do was see it if I published it to you and you subscribed. There was no two-way uh, syncing. So we actually reverted to Google Calendar for the past several years, and, and it worked just fine. With CalDAV, however, uh, that brings to the table a lot of the functionality that uh, that that we had with Google Calendar and 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 some even newer stuff. Uh, what it does is it allows the calendars are no longer considered local. The copies of them are local, but the calendars themselves are hosted on the server, similar to how we talk about IMAP with Mail. Right? It's the the server is the is the home for all this stuff. And then all of your clients, including your Mac, just sync to it. So, so we made this migration, John, and, and we can talk about the process a little bit. In fact, you've, I did this a couple of weeks ago. You, you just did it recently. So talk I, qu quickly through. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, no, I trusted you, Dave. And, uh, yeah, I, know you no, I, I, I trust you pretty much implicitly, but no, in the web interface, when I went to the calendar, there was a, a little ribbon and it just, you know, said, Click here if you'd like to migrate. And so and you clicked. I, so I clicked and then it said, well, you know, you may have to wait a little while. And I saw some progress bars. And then at some point, I actually, yeah, I saw some progress bars. And then it said, well, you know, depending on the, you have a lot of events and stuff. So, you know, hold wait about an hour before you, you do anything. And I did. And then eventually, I, I think in less than an hour, I got an email okay. from, from dot Mac saying, yep, all done. And I'm like, oh, well, that's cool. Well, let me see how things are different. And the, one of the first things I did was start up iCal. And I started up and I noticed that one of the categories that I used to have there, which I guess was the old sync, had disappeared. And then I started panicking. And then all of a sudden, the new one appeared um, under the other calendars. Or a new one appeared in my list. And then it started syncing. And it basically mirrored what, what was in the Google Calendar. And I'm, I'm curious how you migrated that, Dave. How you magically, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you didn't manually copy and paste everything from one to the other. No. But all, all the identical events appeared in both calendars. And I well, guess we're yeah, not so let's, the Google one. Let's back up a little bit. Let's not talk about this migration from the Google Calendar yet, but we will. Okay. Uh, but, you know, it's just as far as migrating your mobile me calendars from the old to the new. You're right. After you were done and and. The point you made about waiting until it's done is huge because this is all happening on Apple's back end. Now, the first step, which you, of course, were doing, but it, again, it you know bears, it bears uh, being explicit about is first making sure that your calendars are syncing correctly to the old mobile me. Right. If that's not happening, then it's not going to migrate over because it's those calendars that are on the cloud that are going to get migrated. It has nothing to do with what's on your computer. So, you know, making sure that you're synced up and everything's good, then doing what exactly what you said, John, and, you know, go through that process and then wait until it's truly done to launch iCal, because what's going to happen is all your old calendars are going to go away. And then iCal is automatically going to subscribe you to your new calendar uh, on their CalDAV server. Um, and, and as long as you're a mobile me customer, of course, you have access to uh, to your data out there. So uh, which I guess makes Apple kind of the Gestapo at that point. But that's OK. You know, we, we we're going to send them our money anyway. We might as well do it for this. Uh, but yeah, so so then it then it just works, but it allows some cool things because um, we and, and I'll I'll explain later. I'll do this a little out of order. But once once we got there and I had the, the Mac Geek Gab calendar in my mobile me account again, I just went in and I said, share this with uh, with John Braun. Now, I had to give him your 
Mac.com address or your me.com, whichever you use. Uh, but then you got an email, right? That said, subscribe and boom, all the events were there, right? Mm-hmm. All right. Now, the cool thing is, it, and Google Calendar syncing worked a similar way. But, John, I want you to try something, if you would, for me. We're going to do this live here. Mm-hmm. Go, go into the um, go into the, the iCal and create a to-do on the mobile me calendar for Mac Geek Gab, if you would, because that is one that we share and, and make it for today. And uh, and I want to see something. Ah, see if this works. So I'm going to go to file and say new to do. Correct. All right. It's kind of sitting here. It's probably just waiting for you to type, right? It's probably already put it. Ah, on the I see. I'm sorry. Okay. Sorry. No, you're right. Okay. And then on the right hand side. Okay. It says to do items by priority. Yeah. New to do, and I'm going to say, um, uh, do Mac Geek Gab. All right. Premium. And I'm going to close that. All right. Now you should see the little uh, sync yep. spinning icon go. Did yep. it go? Okay. Something's spinning. Okay. It's still spinning. All right. Let me let me know when it stops spinning. It shouldn't take oh, very it's long. Stopped. Okay. So now I am opening up Busy to do on my iPhone, which syncs with Mobile Me, and sure enough, I see a an undated to do called Do Mac Geek Gab Premium appear immediately in my thing. So what I'm going to do, John, win. is I'm going to check that to do off, and that will automatically sync back with the CalDAV server. And at this point, John, you, I think you created a second to do because I see another to do called new to do. Yeah, I'm trying to get rid of it. I'll get rid of it. I can do it right from here. Uh, and I see a check mark here. Did, and it, so the check mark oh, appeared. That's yeah, pretty cool. Isn't that amazing. Yeah. Yeah. These computers are magic. Yeah. So this is what CalDAV allows you to do. And, it, and as you just heard, it's seamless. We didn't plan this. I thought about it in the shower about 20 minutes ago that it would be cool to do it this way. Uh, so, yeah. So it works. So. What I had to do, and I figured this would work because I've been using this for a couple of weeks, but I had to migrate the Google Calendar, what the data we had in Google Calendar over. Now, I used BusyCal to do it. My guess is you could do this with an iCal, but uh, but I trust BusyCal a lot more because it shows me logs and I can see what's going on. So I, I highlighted the old uh, Mac Geek Gab. Well, first I renamed the old Mac Geek Gab calendar in Google to old so that when they showed up in my calendar list, I could separate them out. Uh, because I'm I'm not smart enough to notice where they actually are. So I figured I'd rename it. Then uh, I highlighted it, and in the file menu uh, from BusyCal, I chose Export, and I just exported it to an ICS file. And, and I'm pretty sure you can do this with iCal as well. <laughs> then, uh, then I created, first, created a new blank calendar on MobileMe called MacGeekCab, and then I imported that, uh, that data into that calendar and it took a little while for it to push it you know all up to the cloud because it's got several years of shows or whatever and uh and so it pushed it up to the cloud and uh, and that's when that's the point at which i shared it shared that calendar with you john and you know the rest is history as they say so Very the, nice. the, yeah the net is that it works uh if you haven't done it yet do it i when I did it, I had some problems. I, I was antsy. I, uh, you know, I, I'm impatient. And so I, I, I futzed with things probably when I shouldn't have, but I couldn't get the thing to load. And so I instituted one of those mobile me chat support sessions, right? I've never done that before. And it was fantastic. They came on, they said, okay, what are you trying to do? I said, well, I started migrating my calendar, but, uh, it keeps giving me this error. And, uh, and the guy's like, well, try it from another computer, which I thought was sort of strange. 
And because it was all browser based and, and I said, well, I've quit the browser and restarted. He's like, no, I'll try it from another computer. And so that started the process, believe it or not. Uh, we don't know why. But then I said, well, it's taking, I said, you know, what's the problem? I said, do I have too many events? He said, well, look at this knowledge base article. And it did. It said, you know, if you have more than, I don't know, 7,000 to do's and 20,000 events, uh, we can't migrate you because you just have too much data. And, Hmm. and so I, but I can't, I don't know how many I have. I mean, the iCal doesn't give me that information, right? There's no, there's no statistics pain that I can see, but the guy on the other end could, and he said, no, 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 you're good. He says, you've got a lot because I have data going back to 1993 in my calendar. But, uh, but yeah, you know, but uh, he uh, he said, no, you've only got like, you know, 7,200 events or whatever it was. I'm like, OK, he mm-hmm. said, but it's going to take some time. So you got to chill out. And, you know, once this starts, you just got to let it happen. And uh, and I screwed up. I launched BusyCal, I think, before the server had finished configuring things or converting things. And so. I wound up pulling things down and then it wasn't all there. And I wound up pulling it down twice and I, I screwed everything up, but I'm a geek, so I can I deal with it. And it was my own darn fault anyway. Yeah. The, the only thing I noticed, we talked about it before, but I think they have a little bug in the web interface because as, mm. uh, as we talked about, I'm looking here and, uh, and I thought they would change the time. Only with relation to events created in BusyCal, And even then, <gasps> oh. not all of them. There, there's a weird, and I don't know where the bug is. I don't know if it's yeah. a busy cal bug or a mobile me calendar so I, bug, but but yeah, there's yeah. an issue. So I looked at the calendar and I saw Mac Geek App Record for today at ten o'clock. Which yeah, this is calendar on the web. Yes, mobile right. me on the web right. accessing the calendar that you and I share, and, and it says it's at ten a.m. And I'm like, well, you know, what do you, you know, first I was going to holler at you, like, well, you know, come on, ten a.m. I mean. <laughs> Let's be civilized here. That's that's kind of early. <laughs> You're over five hours late, John. That's right. <laughs> but then what was weird, Dave, is I double click on the event and it says three to five PM as as we usually schedule it. Right. Because you know, we we you know do things other than the podcast. Yes. We have the pre show and all that. But it shows up properly in the detail when you double click on it in the web interface, yet on the the graphical view in mobile me it shows it oh and look oh and it changed the color which i did in iCal isn't that pleasant yep we're gonna have a fight over the color aren't we anyway oh did so, it did it change the color for me too i uh, changed it to a nice happy red oh uh, well let me sync here <laughs> and see i don't know if it changes it to red yeah because i can't have it red there'll be there'll be none of that <laughs> Uh, I have i have red reserved for other things in my calendar and that's not it no it did not change the color for me huh interesting yeah. At least anyway, not, in, so, uh, not in BusyCal. I don't, I don't know about the web interface, and I don't really care because yeah. I don't use that. So. so the migration was pretty smooth. Now, it's funny because I think in the past, you and I noted is that uh, the people that came up with the, the, you know, usually this is a group of people throughout the industry that come up with this. And actually, one of the people that was on the board of people that came up with the CalDAV standard was, is or was uh, from Apple. So it's kind of funny that it took them this long to, you know, latch on to, uh, to the standard here. Well, they've but been they using CalDAV in Mac OS 10 server for quite some time and iCal has supported it for quite some time, but it, right. it's just, so is just recently that they moved it for mobile me. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay. All right, cool. So if you have any questions about the mobile, new mobile me calendar, uh, you know, we, we, we now do have a uh, hands-on experience with it, but my guess is you're probably not going to have many questions with it because it, it works pretty smoothly. So if you haven't yet taken the plunge, Apple has not forced everyone to take the plunge to migrate. If you haven't, go ahead and do it because it 
it, you know, it works really well with all the iOS devices. The syncing is instantaneous. There's none of this mucking with sync services. Every time you, you move one event around it, you know, every iCal is its own client directly and it. iCal talks directly to the CalDAV server. There's no middleman. So it, it, uh, it works well. And obviously it works really, really well with busy Cal other than that weird web interface thing that no one really understands yet, but hopefully, hopefully they'll figure it out because I'm sure some right. people care about that. Moving on uh, to our questions for today. Actually, we have a we have a tip to start with, don't we, John? Uh, sort of a, a, a public service announcement from Douglas. Uh, Doug writes, Douglas writes, I was listening to Mac Roundtable 95. Uh, John, I believe you participated in Mac Roundtable 95. Yes. And in describing a situation he had, John casually mentioned that a blinking orange light on the Airport Express meant a firmware update was available. This struck me because a couple of days earlier, I'd noticed the light on my Airport Express was blinking orange. Since my desktop is connected via Ethernet, I made a mental note to look into it later when I had the time. During the course of my day, I ran Apple's update utility and installed the necessary updates. Later, I noticed that my Airport Express light was back to green. I really didn't connect the updates with the Airport Express until John mentioned it on the Mac Roundtable. I've been listening to your show for quite a while and have not heard this. So since there has recently been a firmware update for the Airport Express, I thought it might be a good time to mention this on your show, just in case some of your listeners aren't aware of this feature of the Airport Express. And of course, it's this is a feature of the time capsule as well. Right. And and the reason I noticed it is, you know, over the holidays, I was at the parents and as you know, I set up the mom with, you know, a, a new uh, airport extreme and, uh, and a new computer. And of course, mom being mom or just since nothing was wrong. But the, the first thing I noticed when I stepped in the room, because the, the airport is prominent, was a blinking yellow light. And I'm like, you know, first I'm like, why didn't she call me and say, what is this blinking light? Then again, nothing was, was malfunctioning. Right. But it was indicating that, but, but I, I think it's also worth mentioning, Dave, a couple of other, you know, aspects of what that light means. Now I leave it. Normally it's always green and green is good. Green means everything's happy when it's blinking. There, there's either a problem with it. And if you run the airport utility, it'll tell you, um, but you can also go to, um, if you go to the airport utility and then the airport menu, and then there's an options dot, dot, dot button. And if you look in there, it'll actually say status light. And the default behavior is always on. There is also another behavior. You can say flash on activity. And I don't know if I could stand that. I think that that would, that would drive me crazy. But then there's also a checkbox within that menu saying check for firmware updates and the update frequency, whether daily, weekly, or monthly. Of course, I have it on daily because I, I want to check frequently. So it's a, it's worth mentioning that. Now, another thing about the firmware on the airport, which I think is a really nice feature. So if you run the airport utility and you see, it'll show on the left-hand column a list of devices that the airport utility sees. And if you right-click on that or control-click or whatever you want to call it, there's going to be a choice, upload firmware, dot, dot, dot. Now, this is kind of a nice feature. So say you do apply a new firmware, and I don't think I've ever had this happen, and something goes bad, something doesn't work and you suspect it's because the firmware is updated. Here's a really cool feature, Dave, is that the airport maintains a history of all the prior ones. So if you right click again on this, uh, on the airport and then you say upload firmware, it'll say current version and then it'll say upload version. And if you click on that, it'll give you a list of all the other firmers that have been on that device. So this is a good 
problem solving tool if you suspect that the latest airport firmware has has caused you grief. And I'm looking at my list here. It's right now it's seven five two, but it has seven four two four one three two three one three or other. So something good to know if you want to troubleshoot your uh, your your uh, time capsule or your airport extreme. Now, John, you said that you don't have it flash to light uh, on activity because that would drive you crazy. And I I'm with you on this, except I've found that for my time capsule, uh, there's an option to have it flash the light on disk activity, which I find really helpful to know if a computer's backing mm. up. So I actually have that on and it doesn't drive me crazy, but I, I kind of thought it might, but at first I wanted to know. And you know, when I got it and I, it doesn't bother me at all. So, hmm. uh, so, you know, uh, it, which surprises me. Because I'm like you in that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Uh, John writes, not you, of course, but uh, for actually new premium listener, John uh, writes, referring to episode 307, I've installed Mac OS 10 on a flash drive and, of course, did a custom installation. But my question is, uh, using an iMac early 2008 to do the install, could I then take this drive to use to boot my MacBook Pro, my MacBook, etc.? So, yeah, we did. In 307, we talked about creating a flash drive as kind of the emergency boot disk. But John brings up a good point that uh, the OS on the disk is only as good as all the Macs that were out at the time that OS was installed. Uh, So if you want to make it boot all your Macs, uh, you need to make sure or if you want to make sure it'll boot later Macs, uh, you need to make sure that you boot from that drive occasionally and continually perform software updates, especially OS updates like, well, in fact, today we had 1066, right? But, you know, keep updating it and that will keep you uh, up to date on, uh, on, on, you know, being able to boot Macs. But as, as ties into, uh, to another question, in fact, to our next question, uh, you can't have a Snow Leopard boot disk boot power PC machines. And of course a leopard 10.5 boot disc isn't going to boot all the newer Macs. So you may need, depending on how extensive your, uh, your library of Macs is, you may need to uh, have two USB boot discs, one with the latest leopard and one with the latest snow leopard. Right, John? Really? Well, I don't know. Well, no, let me make sure I heard you. So you said a leopard, Boot disk will not run on newer machines. I don't think you can boot your Mac Mini with Leopard. In fact, you can't boot your Mac Mini with anything less than ten six five, if I'm not mistaken. Huh. Well, hold on. Let me try. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, wait, wait. Everybody, wait right here. (laughs) Yeah. No. Okay, that's curious. You know, I, I, I would. No, you know, I, I think I'm with you on that. I think you probably couldn't. But that's a good lead into the to the next question. It is. uh, Yeah. Let me. uh, let me pull that up here. Uh, Carl wrote in. Carl writes, uh, I'm setting up my mom with my old MacBook Pro, my Mac Pro. See, this is where this is what threw me off here, John. So I'm going to read the question as it stands. Usually we try to kind of interpret right. here. He says, I'm setting up my mom with my old Mac Pro dual two gigahertz power PC G5 running Leopard 10.5.8. Now, of course, you can't have a Mac Pro. That's power PC. It was either a power Mac, a power, right? Power Mac, right? Was what we called those. <sighs> oh, okay. I understand because I caught you. Yeah. So, right. okay. I'm going to keep okay, reading. So, okay. so 
So I'm going to assume either he got the name of the machine wrong or the processor. I'm going to assume he, he got the name wrong. the machine. That's right. So he says, on verifying the startup volume using Onyx, I get the following error message. The volume needs to be repaired along with the relevant instructions. However, I can't find my original Leopard install disk to run the disk utility. Can I use my Snow Leopard install disk to repair the volume instead? If not, why not? Okay, so uh, it's potentially a little bit of a trick question. In a very general sense, uh, yes, you can use a disk that is not the version of your OS to repair the file system on the disk. It's just running, uh, well, it's running a command, essentially running a command called FSCK, uh, which, and and there is no OS specific stuff uh, that goes along with that, at least not as relates to, uh, you know, repairing uh, uh crummy file system. However, as we just discussed, if this is in fact a power PC machine, you cannot boot from the snow leopard DVD because snow leopard doesn't boot power PC machines. So depending on what you actually have, you may, you may need to find a leopard boot disc of some kind. Yep. If that's the path you want to take. But there's, and I tried this Dave yeah. because I was looking at what you said again. I, I, I missed the, uh, the mismatch between the machine name and the processor. And I'm like, can you boot a snow leopard DVD on a G five? Now one problem I had. So of course I still have the G five, the power Mac G five. I, I think the exact model that he has here, the two gigahertz dual two gigahertz. Right. So got my snow leopard DVD, put it in the machine, tried to boot it. And as it turns out, I think my uh, DVD drive in this thing is shot because it eventually <laughs> spit it out. Okay. Well, maybe well, no, maybe it spit it out because it can't, Boop. Well, no, it doesn't see it at all. I mean, okay. it should at least be able to mount it, right? Yeah. yeah Just to right. see it as a disc. Sure. So then, well, what do you do? What do you do? Well, I use a very expensive external DVD drive. <laughs> Firewire target I, mode. <laughs> exactly. So I had a Firewire 400 cable, or, though you could use an 800, plug that into the G5, then plugged it into the power Mac. And as people may know, but if you don't, there's this very useful thing called target disc mode. And I basically started up, well, put in the disk, then started up the Power Mac and held down T. And what happens is eventually you're going to get a happy little Firewire icon dancing around on the screen. And and as you said, it basically makes it a very expensive external DVD drive. Right. And I tried that, and then I started up the G5 and held down um, Option because I wanted to run the what we call the Startup Manager. And it showed the drive, which is still in that machine, and the disk never showed up. So, because I think it's now in theory, I think they could make it so that a Snow Leopard disk, you know, being Intel specific, could boot and run a version of this utility. But I think they're really trying to, yeah, that that just causes headaches. Right. So it just doesn't even show up because it doesn't recognize either the code or or, or something else there. But it, it again, it didn't even show up. Uh, uh, in the startup manager. So, so, so let, let's assume that Carl does have a power PC machine and only a snow leopard DVD, but needs to repair this volume. Now, in order to do a volume repair, you have to take the volume offline. Essentially it, it, it can't be the boot volume, right? So there is, you know, the, the main way to do that is to boot from another source, but you can, boot from that drive uh, and catch it very early in the startup process and still do the repairs. And Apple has called this single user mode. If you hold down command S when you boot the machine, 
that will boot you to a command line. And there's a command you're going to run. And it is. It's that same FSCK command that I mentioned earlier. And what you need to type is sitting right there above the line where you need to type it. So you, it's not even worth going through the command here because you're going to know it anyway. It's right there. And you type that and it will run through and fix things. Of course, this is why I always recommend to install Applejack. Applejack is a utility that sits at your single user mode command line and allows you to do a lot of things. Now, they're all things that you could do if you knew the terminal commands to type to do them. It doesn't actually add anything, at least not in this regard, but it makes life a whole lot easier to be able to just have it and and say, go run. And it just does everything and you don't have to remember all your terminal commands. So and Applejack is free. So applejack.sourceforge.net is where to get that. But even without Applejack, very easy to run the file system check from the uh, from the command line. So that's probably your best answer there, Carl. Anything else, John, on this one? Are we moving to uh, to Daniel? We're moving. All right. Hi, Dave and John. Uh, thank you for your show. Um, my name is Daniel from Ontario, Canada. Uh, I'll start off with a quick tangent to my original question. Uh, just wanted to record my question on a quick voice note and realize that uh, there doesn't seem to be a simple uh, application for that on my iMac like there is on my iPhone. Uh, but I've since found QuickTime and hopefully this will work. Seems to work. Um, I've been a uh, user of an iMac for about uh, two years now. Uh, it took me about 22 years to convert from a PC user, uh, but I uh, will never look back. Love it. Anyways, uh, my question has to do with mail. Um, I haven't done anything unusual that I know of, but uh, recently um, I can't seem to send mail out uh, dependably um, without having to shut down my mail application and having it uh, store my outbound messages into the outbox automatically, then restarting mail and... Uh, and then I see my outbound messages get delivered. Uh, so I'm not sure why. Um, <clears throat> I frequently have to do that though now. Sometimes it works, but uh, after a few attempts, usually my outbound messages will just sit there idling and not actually get sent out uh, without the restarting of the mail application. Just wondering if uh, you have any insights on how to resolve that uh, annoying little problem. Thank you so much and uh, have a great day. Bye-bye. Thanks, Daniel. Uh, so I don't know the magic answer here, John, but I do good. But I'll, I'll let you give it a crack first. Oh, thanks. Okay. Uh, all right. So the way that I would troubleshoot this is there's two things that you can do. Uh, first is open up. If you go to the window menu in mail and go to the activity window, it's going to come up and show you every connection that mail has open at that point in time. Now, when mail is sitting idle, this should show nothing. Uh, what you what I would say to do is create a new message, click send and see if anything shows up here. Uh, that that would be that would be kind of my first step just to just to see. OK, because clearly sometimes it's working, but sometimes it's not. Uh, then the other thing to do is. You can, if you go to the, uh, back to the window menu and go to the, uh, connection doctor, 
right below that. You, that was eight, my answer. That was your answer. Oh, sorry, John. <laughs> I wish I, I used that. this. I, I used this the other day because I did have a problem. Okay. With an outgoing email, and and one of my, uh, I, I think I had recently changed the password, and I wasn't getting an explicit error from mail, but but it showed up as as you point out, Dave. There's the connection doctor, and it shows each of your, I believe, outgoing, or maybe incoming and Both. outgoing, and one of them had a little red dot next to it. Right. And yeah. So go on. But yes, that that is, I think, the best tool to diagnose mail problems. And again, it disappointed me that mail itself didn't say, "Do your passwords." wrong or, or right. so, it was something similar to that and it didn't tell me i had to go to the connection doctor to find that out so the connection doctor is cool because it does exactly what you said but it also has a little show detail button at the bottom and essentially you know i mentioned before how i like to see the logs in BusyCal. well that's what this shows you here it shows you excruciating detail about the entire connection that happens between mail and whatever server it's talking to. So if you have three or four mail accounts and you go check mail uh, on this, it, you'll get a laundry list of stuff come by. You, you won't be able to see what's happening, but let it, you know, let it go through, let it calm down and then go send your new message and you will see what's happening here. And you might be able to see, okay, look, it's trying to connect to this server. It's, it's not working, uh, but that that's where I would go to troubleshoot that. Of course, then, you know, mail preferences accounts select really select any account. And then on the account information tab at the bottom is the outgoing mail server where it says SMTP and go and take a look at that. And you might even want to edit the SMTP server list and delete any extraneous servers. It's possible you've got some laggard server out here that doesn't work but when you relaunch mail maybe well that was odd we had a very strange audio error here but we're back anyway uh when you relaunch mail uh john you're still with us yes absolutely excellent okay good uh but you know when you relaunch mail it might go and uh, try a different server or something like that uh and and that could be the uh the, the, the solution here. So you might have some dead SMTP server out there that you just need to remove from, uh, from your list. So, uh, so that's, uh, that's what I have on that one, John. I, I stole your thunder unintentionally. I thought we'd pass it back and forth, but, uh, no, that's fine. Uh, the, the only thing, I don't even know if I want to suggest using telnet to telnet directly to the mail port and try to fiddle with that because that, that gets a, a bit too geeky even for, even for premium because I've done that in the past. I mean, it's, it's not so bad yeah. with SMTP or pop. Uh, the, the standards are published and, and you can again, use the telnet application either from the command line or a telnet application. And typically what you do is instead of telnetting to the normal telnet port, which is what 20, uh, I forget. But you can tell them that the telnet will take an argument, which is the another port to go to. And a lot of these protocols, so the, the email protocols, will operate in plain text. And you can go to them. And I've done this in a pinch when I didn't have an email client handy, just to see if the if the server was even talking to me. You know, a lot of you know, like basically a lot of them, like pop. If you telnet to it and you say user capital U S E R and your username and pass and your password and then list, you can list your email messages and. Uh, Again, that gets a little bit geeky. I'll see if I can find an article that goes over that. But but you shouldn't need to do that. The connection actually, and from what I see, Dave, the connection doctor in the detail view do, pretty much is doing that. It's showing you the raw, you know, the raw commands that are going back and forth. And, and it can be a bit overwhelming because there's a lot happening there. Yeah. 
for sure. For sure. Um, okay. Moving on. You know, let's go to, uh, let's go to Michael. Uh, Michael asked a great question. He says, uh, I'm having uh, not a problem, but uh, more of a question about the different types of setups that you can have with a second router on the network. Uh, currently I have an airport extreme and an airport express in the airport express. When I, when I go into airport utility, uh, I see the four, four options under uh, wireless network setup. I see join wireless network, extend a wireless network, participate in a WDS network and create a wireless network. Can you tell us what these are and what they all mean? And uh, yes, Michael, we can. So uh, this was this is interesting because some of these are, are similar. So I'm going to start with the um, with the first one that you mentioned, which is join a wireless network. This is only an option that's available on the airport express. Essentially what it does is it allows the airport express to connect to a wireless network. And it doesn't have to be an Apple network uh, as a client, just like your iPhone or your Mac or anything else does. Now this is a little weird for a router to just connect as a client. But again, the airport express also has some, other functionality that being the music streaming and all that. Uh, so you may want to just have it be a client and not have it do any sort of, uh, you know, server based or networking or be a host for anything that is just its own client. So that's, that's what that one does. Uh, correct. John, you've got an airport express and that that's what that does, right? Uh, you know, I really don't, <laughs> I've never done I that. that. Uh, yeah. I don't think I use that. Uh, okay. Uh, I mean, which one, which one? I'm sorry. Uh, join a wireless network. No. Okay. I, I, uh, I think you've mentioned that you've done it when you're on the road. So yeah. you, you, you can, yeah. So you, you glom onto an, another network, I guess. That's right. Okay. So then that leaves three left that the first one is the default, which is create a wireless network. This is what we're all used to when we get our mm -hmm. routers. Uh, they, they broadcast their own network and you can connect to them and then via the router connect to the internet or, or what have you. Uh, and then, and I'm going to go out of order actually at this point, there's participate in a WDS network. Now in a very general sense, WDS stands for wireless distribution system, and it allows you to extend a wireless network by linking together base stations that are within range of one another. Uh, mm -hmm. there are three roles that a base station can play in a WDS network main or the, the server that kind of holds things relay and remote. So again, yeah, main is the, the originator of the network remote is a station that pushes the signal to otherwise out of range wired or wireless clients and relay bounces the signal between main and remote. So relay isn't going to let any clients connect uh, to my knowledge. It's only going to let other WDS base stations connect, and it can be the thing that allows it to hop uh, further than it already might. Of course, you all know my feelings on this. Get power line and you're good to go. Uh, you don't want to mess around with actually extending a wireless network, but that's what those things do. Relay. Yeah. You know, I think Relay does two roles. I'm, I'm actually I, I just very quickly while we were talking, brought up an article that Apple has in their knowledge base and Relay. It looks like it lets you either let a remote talk to it or a wireless client. So I guess it, it provides a uh, two roles here and then a remote. It looks like just goes to a wireless client or wired 
or wired. Yes. Right. So, uh, but, but you know that, that uh, yeah, WDS, I, I think Apple does a good job of making it as it, it, it to me, it gets overly technical with all this terminology well, and stuff. I mean, it's obvious what I think most people want to do. You want to take one base and make it part of, you know, extend another. Well, that, and, and, and that goes to the, the final, the fourth and final mm-hmm. option, which is in, in Apple's menu of extend a wireless network. And with this, as long as you're using only Apple base stations, you can do this. And it effectively creates a WDS network without you having to figure out how to do all this stuff. Um, and, and that, that works really well. Of course, again, it has to be all Apple stuff because, you know, Apple stuff knows how to talk to other Apple stuff, presumably and all that. So yeah, they do. They auto configure. It's yeah. Zero configuration for WDS, I guess is the way to talk about that. Right, John. Mm-hmm. But again, just get power line. It's much simpler and you, I've never seen WDS work well. Have you, I know we've talked about this. We've, we've beat this to death, but uh, well, it, I mean, the thing is when I've seen it happen, Dave, I mean, a lot of people, their, their goal is to extend their signal. Right. And the thing is, if your signal at some point sucks, then WDS is just going to help help it suck more, help promote, help extend a signal that's already kind of dicey. So yeah, I, I don't think I've ever had really good luck with it. Yeah. I, I would either, you know, get a better antenna or, or reposition or something like that. But yeah. Presumably it's got to work somewhere. I mean, there's enough people talking about WDS that, well, you know where WDS works is when you've got a highly focused. So most of us are used to what I'm going to call very, very short range Wi-Fi connections. And that is the, the round kind of connection that we have in our house, you know, omnidirectional from a base station. It just broadcasts its signal out. And, you know, if you're within what, anywhere between 10 and and uh, 300 feet worth of range, depending on what you've got in the way. Right. Well, I, and I believe it's WDS that's used for this. The other thing that you can do with Wi-Fi is you can focus it down into a unidirectional signal and you've got to aim two dishes at each other, uh, you know, so that you get a, a, a tight focus. But you can go several miles with Wi-Fi that way. And uh and it works really, really well. I, I had a friend in Texas. This was years ago. I'm assuming that he's gotten a cable modem by now or something. But at the time, that was not available. He was out kind of uh, in the outskirts of Austin. And I think I mentioned it on the show how much it blew me away that there we were. And he had his little antenna on the top of the house. And he was just a, a you know, a remote, I guess, at this point. Or no, he was a client on on a on a network. And he would just you know, get the signal and his little router would then, you know, he could then broadcast inside his house. But, uh, but it was this, you know, microwave essentially going from somewhere, somebody about a mile and a half away. Um, and it, it worked fine. And my, my, uh, my uncle up in Maine did the same thing. He set up a WDS between two homes that he has. Cause he, he was too cheap to pay for, uh, to pay for a second cable modem connection. And he had this one line to say he had to c- cut down one tree, uh, but it crossed his neighbor's property uh, to this other house that he has down a hill. And he just aimed that stuff perfect and it worked fine. So, yeah. So that's, that's probably where this WDS stuff comes from. I, I have to guess. I mean, otherwise why would, you know, it's just, it, I've never seen it work, but maybe, you know, maybe that's just me. Yeah. yeah. Do Dan, or are we going to save Dan for later? I, I just like Dan's. Uh, yeah, we can do Dan. That's fine. It's just kind of, it, 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 it reveals something cool. I it does. Yep. Okay. So yeah, let's see if we can, see if we can boil this down to its essence. 
Uh, Dan writes, uh, earlier today, I went into the airport utility to check and see if my time capsule had any firmware updates or anything. Uh, I've recently acquired a brother printer and added it on the network. I can tell what it is when looking in airport utility as it displays its model number for the client ID. The strange thing I have on the network, which seems to just have appeared as of today, is a device with the client ID uh, and he lists some ID. He, uh, and it's Pudelec, P-O-O-D-E-L-E-K, which doesn't have any we none of us know, you know, anything. It's probably just somebody named it that way. Uh, my network here has a mixture of Macs and Windows machines on it. I've checked all the devices we usually have on the network and none of them have this name nor the IP that this mystery device has been given. I, of course, have the network locked down with WPA2 personal security, and I have a good password on it. If this is a snooper on my network, how in airport utility can I boot them off? Uh, I can't see any easy way to do this. All right, so go. I got it. All right, so short answer is, as far as I know, there is not a way to boot the person off, but... I want to dig into this because this is mysterious. So he is on the screen where if you go in the airport utility, it's airport, then you click on wireless clients, then DHCP clients, or I'm going to assume that. Now, what this shows you, assuming that the airport is doing DHCP, is you're going to see a number of values in this table, Dave. MAC address, IP address, client ID, which is, I assume, where he gets this from. And this is something you can provide for a DHCP device. And whoever, you know, Mr. Evil is, is doing that. And then lease time. Here's the part that's cool, Dave, the Mac address. Now, when you look at that, that's kind of a random string of, of hex digits. What does it mean? How can you tell what, what's the significance? I'm going to tell you, Dave, rather than having a mishmash of these and people just selecting these randomly, there is a rhyme and reason to them and that there is actually an authority that says, all right, you vendor A, vendor B, whoever you are, I'm going to give you this range of MAC addresses, and these are the MAC addresses that you're allowed to use. So my first suggestion is get that MAC address. Again, I'm going to assume the device is in this table. And then I found a very nice uh, site here. Uh, we, we will put it in the show notes. But if you type in a MAC address, it will tell you who owns it. And I almost bet you if he types in the MAC address of whoever's on the network, it's going to tell them. And, you know, so I think I've had this happen in the past where they may, there may be a forgotten device in yep. the household somewhere that you just forgot. It's an iPod Touch. It's a network adapter. It's something in a closet somewhere. You just forgot that you did it. But this is going to tell you. And, you know, in, in my case, you know, if it's a Mac, it'll say Apple. If it's a TiVo adapter, it'll say TiVo. My iFi card, it says iFi. So it's pretty specific as to who owns that. And I almost guarantee that that's going to tell him who it is. Yep. Now, a few more follow-ups to, to wrap it up. What he's doing is excellent. WPA2 is the best security that you're going to get. I would suggest, though, make sure you put not just numbers and letters in there, but maybe some special characters. Another thing I would do, and I do this on my base station, some people say that it's kind of a way. Well, he also asked, should I not broadcast my SSID? I don't think that it'll hurt to not do that. There are ways to prod a base station to reveal that. But if you're among many targets in an area, it's better if you don't broadcast it to keep the newbies out. Another thing I would do, and I do this on mine, is I also restrict, well, I do two things. I restrict who can access my access point based on MAC address. Again, it's not foolproof, and people can fake the, uh, I mean, you can use ifconfig to fake your MAC address, but it's just another level of security to keep people out. And actually it comes in handy because you can also do your DHCP reservations using the MAC address. And I use them for both, Dave. And then that's a, actually another issue that we'll, we'll come up with. So, and what you do is you just say MAC address. Basically, you say default behavior, no access. And then all the devices that you want to have permission to access it, you give them permission. So, 
But cool. I'd be fascinated. I really want to hear back from Dan and find out who owns that Mac address because it's probably going to, I, I think it's going to be a head slap saying, oh no, it's this device that I forgot about. Or it could be some evil hacker dude. Yep. In which case, uh, again, I, I'm, I, I couldn't find a feature that'll kick somebody off. But if you apply these security settings and then restart it, that'll kick them off. And then I think if, if you, again, filter by Mac address, it's going to keep them from coming in again, or at least make it a lot tougher. Um. You know, I use that DDWRT firmware on my router here, and it's mm-hmm. got that MAC address lookup functionality built into it. Oh, if you, sweet. If you click on a MAC address in any of the lists where a MAC address would appear, uh, it automatically does, it, you know, pulls you to that web page and does the lookup for you, and it just pops up in a window. And yeah, you're right. I do it all the time. You know, I'll be looking. I'll think, what device? You know, because I do DHCP reservations for all of my standard devices here. So when I see something outside of my, you know, reserved IP range, well, that, you know, that makes me scratch my head. And, and so I click on it and invariably it'll be like, Oh yeah, that's right. You know, we replaced the, you know, the, the, my iPhone or whatever, and got a new Mac address. And that's why it's, you know, got a, a thing or there's just something, but like you said, yeah, there's always that, that head slap where you go, Oh yeah, that's what it is. No problem. If, if anything, if it is an attacker, what I'm going to guess the weakness here is that he probably chose a password that either has dictionary words or numbers. And as far as I know, the airport will not prevent you from incessantly trying to get into it. Right. So it could be somebody that's just in the neighborhood and is very, very determined. And again, the airport's not going to reject them. No, uh, uh, you know, attempts, they're going to keep trying to log in. Another way to secure it or to to block this person out would be to just change the password. I mean, it it. it that comes with the pain in the neck that you got to then go around and, and re log in with all your machines. But it, I mean, it, you know, it, if that one reappears after you do that, well then, you know, something wacky's going on. Now, one more thing in the airport utility, Dave, and I just noticed this, but I think it's worth mentioning here. So in airport utility, I had, not, uh, I, I was going through the menus to try to find a feature that would kick people off, but I found something else that, it's kind of novel, but I think it could put, uh, present a security risk. So if you go to the base station menu and you say add wireless clients, and I don't know if you've ever been here, Dave, but it says wireless client setup assistant. There are two ways you can allow a client to join your password protected network without entering a password. Uh-oh. You can either enter a pin for the user or allow access to the first client that attempts to join your network. Huh. I'm going to assume that this feature was not enabled, but if it was... yeah. And and it has a radio button. It says allow client by pin or by first attempt. So hopefully someone has, and, and it also has a checkbox saying limit client access to 24 hours. So on the one hand, that's a nice thing if you don't want to go through the hassle of entering MAC addresses and or giving out your password and you want to allow people to come on temporarily like a house guest or something. But make sure mm-hmm. someone hasn't fiddled with that menu. That That's the other reason I think somebody could have gotten in. Right, right. All right, I think we have, I think we've got time for about well, you know what? Let's do let's do Keith here. Uh, Keith says, I'm coming up on my one year with my 27 inch i7 iMac, and it is starting to have some issues waking up or turning on. In any case, where's the best place for me to get a good price on Apple Care? Uh, I'm a legit EPP member, employee purchase program member, but the six percent is really only the discount of sales tax. Where else can I go? OK, well, the three places I check are small dog, 
Amazon and LAComputerCompany.com. And more often than not, my purchases wind up from the last one because they've got the typically got the best prices. Now, John, you just bought Apple Care or are about to for your new Mac Mini. Well, I think I will. And, and you know, Dave, the thing is, I went to and I found this an excellent tool, frugal.com, which uh, is part of Google. Yep. And when I searched there, Dave, I actually found, so I searched for, and I'm going to do it live here for the studio audience, Apple Care Mac Mini. And I brought up a list. And oh my gosh, you know the best price I got was from buy.com, $95. Versus $149 from Apple, right? And you know, now, how did I know what the price was from Apple, Dave? And I'm going to tell you, and I think we can toss this in here. And this is a good closer because this site, you and I both saw this and we were like, oh my gosh, this site rocks. So Apple just released this recently. I saw a tweet out there somewhere. I think it was the, the Macworld guys or something. Supportprofile.apple.com. This is the OCD. If you are OCD and you want to have a list of all your equipment, assuming that you've registered or even if you have not, I think this is similar to the screen that the Apple people see when you call them up. But Dave, I mean, both you and I looked at it. When you go to this site and you log in, and again, assuming that you've registered your equipment with your Apple ID, it shows you every piece of equipment that you have. It shows you support calls. It showed my latest Apple Care support call. It'll let you register things if you type in the serial number. And, and it also shows you, and, and that's how I found out. So, you know, I had my Mac Mini registered on the site, and it said, "Well, dude, you don't have Apple Care. Well, click on this button, and you can buy it." And I'm like, "One forty nine. Well, I know I can get a better price than that." Cool. Uh, yeah, that'll. Uh, I think that'll. Yep. There's the band. I knew they were around somewhere. It's cold outside. Um, the stor- storms are brewing, Dave. The storms. It's, that's your, what I it's your fault again. I, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Um, you know, we had a haiku contest for a couple of Mac, a couple, three Macworld passes, Macworld Expo passes, and we have winners. Uh, and I'm going to read two of them here, John. Uh, the, the, the second or the first runner up, I guess, would be from Dan. And he says, I read TMO, Macs, iPads, iPhones, they know. Expo, here we go. So that was a pretty good one. I, I like that. But, and there were a lot of good entries, but the distance between, and second was good. Don't get me wrong. But the distance between second and first was a chasm so wide that, uh, <laughs> that, that there was just no, I mean, there was no way that anybody uh, came close to this. And so here we go. In fact, we're going to, uh, we're going to pause the music here for a second. Philip wrote, Catch your Macworld bliss. An apple each day to kiss. You won't want to miss. Coming in a week. It's your chance to catch a peek at items to seek. With old friends to greet through several days on your feet and new friends to meet. Impart what you know. Discover what you don't know. You've come to the show. Gadgets and hardware. Latest and greatest software. You'll find it all there. We'll make it all clear what we really want in gear and features next year. They'll make it. We'll choose what items we'll win or lose. What we'll really use with jobs off hissing. See what Apple is missing. What it is dissing community here. The gathering of your peers laughing, clapping, cheers. 
Good friends helping friends, points to debate and defend to the very end. Now that it's over, in a time of composure, you'll find your closure. You won't want to miss an apple each day to kiss. Catch your Macworld bliss. That's it. I mean, you know, like wow. I said, yeah. <laughs> you going to make it, Pete? Yeah, sorry about that. I was going to hit the mute button. And- oh, yeah, okay. yeah. So that's the uh, that was the winner, Philip. Excellent, excellent job on that, and uh, and uh, excellent job by everybody. There were, there, like I said, there were some fantastic entries that we that we saw come in, but uh, but that was the one. That was the one. Uh, we are going to MacWorld Expo. It is January twenty seventh through 29th. on the twenty seventh, sometime in the afternoon. I think two p.m. Let's call it two. Might be one. Uh, I'm doing my Mac uh, running your Mac lean, clean, and mean session. Saturday afternoon at 5 p.m. closing the show floor. John and I will do a live Mac Geek Gab with a Stump the Geek and uh, perhaps some cool stuff found. You can send in your uh, your comment. Oh, we st- and we still have a deal on hotels for Macworld Expo at the Intercontinental. You can, uh, you can get a room there. It's at the normal Expo price, but you are guaranteed to get an upgrade if you do it through the TMO link, which we will put in the show notes. It's also in the sidebar over there at MacObserver.com. Contact information, of course, you can reach us premium at MacGeekGab.com. No. <laughs> Say it ain't so. You got it all wrong, Dave. It's premium at MacGeekGab.com. Oh, my mistake. Yes, premium at MacGeekGab.com. 206-66-GEEK-6. <laughs> no, that's not the number. Whoa. It's 206-66-GEEK, which John is... Four three three five. That's right. Uh, you can Skype us to Mac Geek Gab and uh, and all of that good stuff. Uh, next week um, on Monday, we're doing cool stuff found again. So send in your stuff. Uh, it's going to be. It, it, we've already got a long list, and uh, and I'm looking forward to seeing what what else comes in between now and then. So we have communicators. Is the podcast that Michael Johnston does, and he converts the Mac Geek Gab into AAC for all of you. Cashfly provides the bandwidth, and uh, that's it. We're out of here. Got anything else, John? I think I'm about done. Good. Oh, I did get. Oh, I got some new toys. You did. Oh, I got some new batteries. You have to tell us about it and cool stuff found, man. We're doing that show next week. Well, the thing is, at MacWorld, Dave, batteries, you don't want to get caught without them. Ah, messed that up. Don't get caught!